Good morning. Wow, y'all are way back there, but I think this will help me get to you. Uh, it's good to be here, Dr. Todd Still. Thank you for the opportunity to come and share these moments uh, with you. And, uh, of course, I'm speaking today on the title of the book, The Jesus Agenda, and the spin on the message today from the reading of the Gospel of Luke is when Jesus shows up. And uh, this is January, of course, you know, January of 2016, but this isn't just any ordinary January. This is uh, January of an election year. And uh, this time next year, there will have been an election and a new president of the United States. And about a week or so uh, within this time frame, you'll hear an inaugural sermon and the uh, president will outline in that inaugural sermon what he or she plans to do in those four years to outline the agenda, usually what the president does. So I'm not here to talk about politics uh, today or any other day from the pulpit, uh, but uh, as is the custom of some. But anyway, uh, we <laughs> I would talk about Jesus, okay? But what I want to do is rewind your clock, and rather than talk about a 21st century agenda, I'm going to go back to the first century and talk about a first century agenda that I think is embedded in the first sermon that Jesus uh, preached in his uh, ministry. And so it was not uncommon during that time in, the, in Israel's history for synagogues to kind of spring up all over the place. Uh, once a temple had been destroyed, it was normal for that to happen. So even in the north and Nazareth and towns and villages all over, you'd see synagogues pop up for places of worship and instruction. And so now we are talking about Nazareth, a Jewish town, northern Israel, a town of about maybe 400, 300 to 400 people. So get in your mind a very small village town with its local synagogue. And uh, we're, we're going to see that in this message, um, Jesus shows up in a most unlikely place with uh, an unanticipated agenda and an unexpected message. And so we start with an unlikely place. Uh, the place, of course, is Galilee. The scripture, according to Dr. Luke, says that uh, Jesus was well-known, well-known for his character, well-known for his teaching, well-known for uh, his presence uh, in, in, this, in this area, the area of Galilee. And so he's about to preach a killer sermon. Uh, it's, the, it's the kind of sermon that you preach and then they want to kill you. Uh, so, so it's a killer sermon. Now, Nazareth is not on the Old Testament first century GPS. Uh, it is not going to be a blip on the radar. It, it's a place of stigma. It's stigmatized. It's one of those places where, you know, when we say you have to really be going there to go through there. And that was the case of Nazareth. In fact, one of the disciples, as uh, Philip calling Nathaniel, said, can anything come, good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth was the feeling of that idea. And so here comes Jesus uh, the author and finisher of our faith to his hometown in Nazareth to preach his first sermon, outline his agenda for his 36-month ministry. And, and there he is. He comes right to the synagogue, and he's right there like you can touch him right there. And yet the people uh, miss him. Uh, they don't recognize him. They don't know who really is the person right in front of him. And so... It's, uh, it's an idea of someone, <clears throat> a feeling of having concealed his identity. So he, Jesus is, you know, does that happen to you? Does it, 
Have you been in that situation where, you know, you wonder, where is God? And he's right there, right in front of you. But somehow, maybe in our busyness, maybe in distractions, maybe in our focus, we can reach out and touch Jesus in the very presence of, 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 our, of our lives, and yet we, we miss him. We, we can miss him. And this is what happened to the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus as they walked along after the resurrection of our Lord, down, dejected, perhaps depressed, sad, feeling bad when Jesus joins them on the road. You remember that story that Luke says in chapter 24, he tells us. And so there he is with them, and they, Cleophas, uh, begins to talk to Jesus, not knowing it's him, and Jesus wants to know what's happening, what, what are you sad about, what's going on, and they say to him, are you a stranger to, to uh, Jerusalem? Do you not know that Jesus, the Christ, the, the, our Lord, was crucified? He sort of gets on their case and gets after them and says to them, you know, you're foolish. You still don't believe. And beginning with the prophets, Jesus opens the scriptures and all the way through tells them uh, about what was to happen. And then they ask him to stay for dinner, so he stays. And then it wasn't until they began to, he began to break the bread that they recognized it's the Lord. And uh, Dr. Joel Gregory, Gregory has referred to this as the incognito Christ the one who's there, but you can't recognize him. And after they left, he left, they reflected and said, didn't our hearts burn within us when we had him open the scriptures and reveal to us that he is Jesus the Christ? What, do you feel sometimes that Jesus is just not there when you need him? Perhaps you might even sense in the, the, the rigor of study of preparing for your ministry that maybe God kind of forgot that you're here and doesn't know what you're going through. And rest assured, he is there, and he has not lost your address. And uh, you need not worry. He knows where to find you when he needs you. <laughs> need not promote yourself. Need not shake the right hand and know the right person because God has not lost track of who you are and where you are. He will call you up at the right time. So it's in Nazareth, and we're in the synagogue. Because the synagogue is the place where Jesus goes because this is the place where you normally expect to find people of faith and where faith might be found. So Jesus stands to read the scripture. And it's the part of the service. You know, we had an order of worship this morning. It's a part of the service where it begins with a Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then there is a set prayers normally in the synagogue order of worship. And then there's a reading from the law and a reading from the prophets. And then there's an instruction. And then there's a blessing at the end. And this is how the synagogue worship would flow. But it's interesting to me to note that this is the only time recorded in Scripture that Jesus reads anything. But in this case, the Scripture. He reads the Scripture before he speaks. If you look at all the other things that you see Jesus saying in those red letters, it's, he's just teaching. He's just from the reservoir of his knowledge and understanding, this only time in the whole scripture that he reads. So this is a very peculiar and very interesting spot. It's a unique place, as Dr. Luke records, only time that Jesus reads and he finds the passage of Isaiah. Isaiah is his uh, go-to prophet. I think I believe that Isaiah was the prophet that Jesus quoted most often. And so he reads the scripture. They hand him the prophet, the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. But the scripture says that even though they handed him the, the reading of the prophet, because that was the reading that was happening, he found the place. 
And there's a sense to which Jesus was intentional. He, he found that particular place in Isaiah to read from that scripture for that occasion, for the only time he would read the scripture, for the first sermon he would ever preach in his 36-month ministry. Interesting to me. But we must know that he was no ordinary rabbi. They thought he might have been an ordinary rabbi, but you know and I know he was not any ordinary rabbi. He was both prophet and Messiah at the same time, both creator and redeemer. He was God and man. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He was the Alpha, the Omega. He was the beginning and the end. He was uh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of the universe, the baby in a manger, all at the same time right there in front of them, and they missed it. They missed it. Not any ordinary rabbi. And he reads from Isaiah. He's about to take an ordinary chapel on a Tuesday morning at Truett Seminary, an ordinary synagogue. Really, you're thinking about what's for lunch. And he turns it into an extraordinary, powerful moment in an unlikely place. And he brings to the people an unanticipated agenda. So verse 17 uh, really is not a direct quote from Isaiah But there are fragments from 61, verse 1 and 2, and 58, verse 5. And um, it was, uh, you you were allowed to take in the prophetic reading pieces from the prophet, but you you couldn't do that in the reading of the law. So we had more liberty, so Jesus took. So if you look up this passage, you'll not find it in its entirety. It's two sections that Jesus puts together. He was aware of his baptism. He was drawing from the image of the suffering servant from Isaiah to then interpret who he was as the servant par excellence for for that day. There was a special anointing because he was about a special task. And so what, what was this unanticipated agenda announced in an unlikely place? Well, he lists out four or five things to preach good news to the poor. Uh, This is a general invitation to anyone who wants to hear the good news, but especially the poor. I think God has a certain inclination towards the poor, perhaps a preferential inclination. Um, You've been around poor people before? I mean, really poor? Like poor, like you really have nothing? I have. I've had the privilege of traveling around the world, being around poor people. And I noticed that when you're around a poor person, they tend to be pretty open perhaps more sensitive, perhaps more willing, perhaps more available and searching for hope, searching for answers uh, within the context of their poverty. Uh, It's speaking here to both material and spiritual needs. If you want to focus just on the spiritual, that's a different sermon. That's Sermon on the Mount. There is a sense to which it's good news because you have material need. And Jesus is good news because you have spiritual need. And one writer said, Jesus' speeches and miracles show that salvation reaches the entire person now. And people need help now when they're poor, uh, not just in the life to come. And so they tend to be dependent uh, sometimes on us when we do the incarnation and show up for them. Not like independent people, wealthy people who really are a little bit more guarded, uh, not as sensitive, not as open, more less trusting, uh, because after all, they have control of their lives, right? Wrong. It's perceived control. None of us have control over anything, whether you've got money in the bank or not. Uh, but, you know, Jesus has good news for the poor today, today, right here, today. 
Uh, he's present with us now today. Don't miss him. He has good news for the poor that are around us. But he also, this idea of the release of captives and sight to the blind, I want to kind of put those together because uh, this is with reference to the Babylonian exile. We spoke, we, we read, we, we sang of the exile. And so this is the idea of the exile, and the exile is in reference to sort of an exile due to sin. We're kind of cast out, brought out, and what, what this idea of captive is the idea of, of uh, uh, prisoners of war, where when you were taken for prisoners of war, the captors would blind your eyes with something, or they would stick you in the dungeon for a long time, so when you came to the light, you, you couldn't see. And so he says, released. Uh, for the captives and sight for the blind, both physical and spiritual, is, I believe, intended, and then to release the oppressed. So there was a time in Israel's history when they didn't do what they were supposed to do with regard to the poor. They were unjust with the poor. And Jesus <clears throat> is saying, what you as Israel failed to do, I'm going to come and do. I'm gonna, it's going to be a, a, a reversal of injustice. And uh, this is justice for the poor. <clears throat> and then, of course, <clears throat> there is a proclaiming of the acceptable year of our Lord's favor. These are the five agenda points. This is what Jesus is, is saying. I'm going to do in my ministry. I'm, I'm here to do it. This is the agenda that they were not expecting. So he's talking about the year of Jubilee, Yom Kippur. And this is when all the debts are forgiven. Uh, this is a time and a place when all sins are forgiven. Total forgiveness, total salvation. And it's the acceptable year. That means he's saying that this is a divine will, a divine effort for God to reach to us. And, and it, it's the favor. It's all the activity, all the gracious activity God will do towards humans. That's what God's favor is about. So I'll never know what my grandmother, my dad's mother, Francisca Rodriguez Reyes, felt the first time she heard the gospel and the good news. Because I never met my grandmother. She passed away before I was born. But she was poor. She married to my grandfather. They uh, were migrant farm workers. They uh, would go around the different places where crops were, and they'd pick cotton. And my dad was a nine-year-old boy, so he vividly has vivid memories, has told me of these stories, how they would get up in the morning and they would have breakfast, and his mother, my grandmother, would be making uh, tortillas on the grill, and then she'd put beans, and that's what they had for breakfast. So it's not, it's not so bad, beans and tortillas for breakfast. Actually, pretty good. I think we call them tacos when we get them down the street. <clears throat> but when lunchtime comes, guess what you're going to eat? Beans and tortillas again. <laughs> Uh, and uh, so that doesn't sound so good. And dinner, uh, I'm told, was always better because my grandmother, I'm told, would grab a piece of bacon and put it in there and then mash up the beans, add a little bit of water, and then it was refried beans and tortillas. So it's always, always better at night. As good as that sounds, that sounds poor every day of your life. Living in the back of a truck and in the wintertime, the kids would bundle up in the cab, and my grandfather would sleep under the tarp. So that sounds poor to me. So um, one day, a man, a Baptist missionary, came and invited my grandmother's family, my grandfather, to the church, the local mission that he was starting there outside of Snyder, and they went. She heard the gospel, and she was open. She was sensitive. She was willing. She was 
wondering if there might be hope for a better life than the one she was living. And uh, she responded to the gospel of the good news. And you know what? It was good news to the Reyes family. All nine of her children prayed to receive Christ. Her husband prayed to receive Christ. They were baptized in the watering hole where they would give water to the horses and, 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 and cows. And uh, I never know what my grandmother felt, but I, I have a hunch that she was looking for hope and that she did respond. So it's good news. It's good news for the poor. Jesus is good news. And listen, I've traveled all around the world. I've been in Russia. I've been in Kenya, Ethiopia, all throughout Latin America, uh, Bangladesh, India. And I've been around uh, people that, that have even less than beans and tortillas three times a day and no bacon at night. And you know what? I figure Jesus is really good news. Everywhere I go that I see the fingerprints, the footprints, and smell the fragrance of Jesus, our Lord Jesus, around the planet, things tend to get better. And uh, I've also been in places where I can't really find a fingerprint. I can't see the footprints, and I don't smell the fragrance. And I've got to tell you, from firsthand experience, humanity can get pretty bad. And, and I don't have to describe it to you. You've seen it on the news. And, and if you're fortunate, you've been there. Global poverty is, it, it does something to the human spirit. It makes you more dependent and open and, and willing for something better. And so Jesus is good news. He is freedom for the captives. He is sight for the blind. He does bring liberty to the oppressed. He does announce the favor of the Lord. And the people that are poor get it. And they're ready to respond. Jesus was not, though, a social activist. He's not out there trying to change the systems, per se. I think we can make him into a social activist. But really, he's aiming for the condition of the heart. That's what he's going for. And when hearts change and minds change, then I think our society gets better and goodness and compassion comes forth. One friend of mine, one uh, missiologist, said, we start with spiritual regeneration, move to moral transformation, and then social reformation, and not the other way around. And so there is a sense that Jesus has an unanticipated agenda in the synagogue, his own place where he grew up, in an unlikely place, but he also has an unexpected message. He's there, and he is close, and he is near, and he is present, and he is not an ordinary rabbi. Do you see him, and do you sense him? How about now? You know, this could just be kind of like check off the box because I have to do it to come to chapel and do what I got to do. But you could miss the very Christ who's called you to serve him. And if you're not careful, um, you could miss him. You could miss because you don't think maybe he's going to show up. Well, we expect him to show up in the seminary and in class, but he may not show up in the lives and maybe your lives when you need him there. It's sometimes an unlikely place, but guess what? He's there, and when he has a message, it's, it's not what you expect. It's not what they expected. So verse 20, he sits down to teach, and, and the tradition in the Jewish uh, community is that uh, you sit down to teach. We stand to teach and preach, but in that culture, you sit down. And the scripture says that the eyes of the people in the synagogue were fastened on him. I mean, those eyes, the eyes of the people were trained on him. If, he, if an eyebrow went up, if a, a nonverbal uh, motion would happen, uh, they were watching it. They were tracking him. Mark, who is all about, Luke, who's all about details, is noticing that everyone was looking at Jesus. 
And he gets to uh, the first word of the first sentence of the first sermon of the only time Jesus reads before he speaks. And the first word was an explosive word. He says, today. Now, had he said tomorrow? Had he said someday? Had he said we aspire or we hope or we look forward to? Again, it would have been a common, ordinary synagogue service. But the fact that he lobs a hand grenade in the middle of the message and he says, today is a radical word. It's a radical way to start the sermon. It's an explosive word. It's talking about the opportunity for salvation is being right now in this very moment. Not now and only now, but sort of a, what some authors call a timeless now. That the opportunity from this moment on forward, you'll always have an opportunity to make a right decision, to get right with God, to have total forgiveness, and to have your life transformed. And so it's the timeless. Now, the scripture then, the scripture that Isaiah wrote, that, by the way, remember, Jesus was there to help inspire what Isaiah would write. And now Isaiah wrote it, Jesus has it, he's reading it to now apply it to himself. So it's this scripture that's coming to fruition, it's coming into fulfillment. And it's as those very words of Jesus hit the decibels, the decibels land in the ears of the people listening. He's saying that scripture that the prophet wrote is here, it's now. And everything that God has promised his people, all people looking for hope in the future in Israel, has come to be real in me now, here, in front of you. That was a shocking word. That was an unexpected message. The hearing then comes responsibility. Uh, Bach would say all the faithful that have been waiting have found what they were looking for in me right now. Prophecies connected to fulfillment, the invent to interpretation, deed and word are connected. Real-time redemption is happening. History and preaching come together all in one word, in one sentence. It all comes together. It's one of those significant moments when, wow, God is present. Have you noticed that in your ministry when, you know, you do the best you can and you say, Lord, if there's ever a time when I really need for you to show up and do something, it's now. Make the difference between my preparation and reality. And so you've preached those sermons before when you walk down from the platform and you ask yourself, what was that? What, was, what happened? God showed up. Something like that happened to me when I was in Jocotenango, a village outside of Antigua, right near Guatemala City, and uh, we were visiting the home of Maria Elena, whose daughter Dulce, which means sweet or candy, had, been, had received the one of the, excuse me, the three millionth pair of shoes uh, from Buckner uh, that uh, we collect in Buckner Shoes for Orphan Souls. And so she'd been given the pair of shoes, and now we were going back months later to visit the family. She had three other sisters, and we drove up because I had a couple donors with me, Dr. Todd, and uh, you know, want to show them our work and introduce them, give them the opportunity to bless other people, not begging for anything. I think I'm giving opportunities for people to steward their resources in ways that make internal difference. And so I took them, and as we drove up, I got the word that the husband of Maria was intoxicated. I mean, totally out of control. I thought, oh, man, should we get down? I mean, 
I don't know what's going to happen. I've got donors I'm responsible in a foreign country, and this could become a scene, and I'm running through all the, all the contingency plans and opportunities and possibilities and solutions. When the knock came on the door and the staff said, Maria says she wants you to stay because she says she feels safer when you're here, and maybe you can pray for her. I said, okay, done deal. Let's get, let's get off. Whatever happens, happens. We're in the Lord's care. So we got down, and we walked our way up to the hill. We walked into her house, and house would be like an exaggeration for what you and I would think house is. It's a dirt floor. It's some sticks coming out of the floor with some tin uh, kind of nailed onto the sticks. And, and then there's a pig over here, pretty big, fat pig. You know, and I'm thinking, you have to answer that TSA question. You know, have you been around livestock? I'm thinking, oh, man. Stay over here, pig over there, dogs and cats running around, kids playing. We're, we're hugging the girls, just having a great time. And we have a visit, and it's just an outstanding moment of fellowship and just great to be. She showed us the new dresser, the, the, the chest of drawers that she received, and showed us how the clothes was neatly clean and folded and stacked in the drawer. And, and because a week before she didn't have a dresser, she folded and stacked her clothes on the dirt floor. So she was so proud of that. We looked at it and commented and, then, and looked at the, the makeshift bed. And Well, the visit was quickly over. We had to go, and we were about ready to go when my staff reminded, oh, she wants you to pray. I said, oh, that's right. So I asked her in Spanish, Maria Elena, um, what, what, what would you like for us to pray for before we go? And uh, I want to honor your request to pray. And she, she, uh, she kind of folded, wrung her hands together, and she says, well, I actually need for you to pray for three things. I said, okay, great. What are they? Number one, she said, would you pray that I do not and will not give up trying to read in Spanish? Because my lifelong aspiration and my dream for my life is to someday be able to read the scripture for myself. Now, she didn't ask for a new house. She didn't ask for a new dress. She didn't ask for groceries. She didn't ask for anything. The first thing was, pray that I won't give up because I want to read God's word for myself. Now, I got to tell you, I was wasted at that moment. I was, I was at the, talk about a Holy Spirit gut punch. I was done. I was like, I can't even say the words. I'm thinking, when was the last time I was that desperate for the word of God? And I'm here to help her. She's helping me. So I got all choked up. I turned to the volunteers, to the donors, and I couldn't get the words out. I, I, I was trying to just say she wants us to pray that she won't quit reading because she has such a hunger for God's word. So I said, okay, number two. And number two, she says, well, you know, we need a better housing situation. What she didn't tell me, I found out later, is that she'd been evicted and she had to get out of that house within a week. No place to go. Pretty desperate. And I said, okay, well, we're, we're going to pray that your house situation gets better. I said, how about number three? Then she starts to cry. <laughs> Tears start to flow. Now I'm crying. She's crying. We're all crying like, oh, man, this is, uh, this is really interesting. This is uh, definitely a God moment. God is here. And uh, she said, well, you know, I love my husband. And I have tried everything I can think of to do. And he's sick and I just don't, by that time, she's sobbing. I don't know what to do. It's the father of my children. It's my husband. I don't know what to do. I, I, I've tried everything. Do you think God can help with that? I said, absolutely. We're, we're going to sure pray that way. So 
we gathered uh, around. I took, we took hands, and I tried to muster up, gain my composure, and muster up the most desperate prayer I could think of for this woman, not knowing what would happen, but appealing to the God of the universe, the rabbi in disguise, that he would show up in her life now and bring solutions for her. And be real for her. She needed to reach out and touch the God if there was one of the universe. And so I prayed. And um, we left. So there's a long story. But to make it short, fast forward. That was a Thursday. By Sunday, the two donors had called me up and said, we have the money to buy a new plot of land and to build her a house. When can we get started? I said, amen. Praise the Lord. There is a God. We're, we're going to get this done. And then uh, so I have a picture of a new brick house. Uh, with uh, the girls in it. The next day, uh, the father, after we left, the judge took him out because he was abusing the children, the girls, his girls. And so he, they, he, the judge said, go to jail or go to rehab. So he chose rehab. The men of the church gathered around him and said, we're not going to let you go through this by yourself. We're going to be here with you. We're going to help you. And so they began to befriend him, and he prayed to receive Christ. He was baptized and began the discipleship process. So one of our, Brad Barnett, uh, Sergio, and Jim, by the way, are with me from Buckner back here in the corner. You know, Brad was there for the ribbon-cutting ceremony. And there and there, there they were, Maria Elena, her husband, Oscar, the girls, big smile on their face. Family was reunited after all these months. And uh, so we just thought we might help them with a new house. We didn't know it was possible that they might get a new dad. Is Jesus good news for the poor? You know, in that moment, I thought, you know, if there's ever been a time when I can reach out and touch him, that was then. That was the time when it happened for me. And so Jesus is there. He's close. He might have an unexpected message for you today. But are you ready? You know, because with hearing comes a responsibility for decision. Well, the people responded. They, they said, he's got rhetoric skill. This, this is the teacher we've heard about. And they recognized his words as being gracious. And, but they also recognized his ancestry. He said, you know, isn't this Joseph? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph? The, isn't Joseph's son? The carpenter's son? And uh, it's as though Jesus reached out and snatched the words right out of their mouth. He knew they were going to come out. He snatched the words and said, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, prophet, heal yourself. Do what you did in your own hometown, what you did in Capernaum. And uh, then he begins to lecture them because he knows what they're thinking. They just, they just can't get over the fact that an ordinary rabbi from their hometown would have the audacity to say that he's the Messiah, that he's bringing all these things we've hoped for now. They just couldn't get over it. They couldn't see past their own inhibitions and their own blindness. And he says, you know, remember the widow in Zarephath. She, she was the only one that got God's blessings. And remember Elisha. Remember Naaman, uh, a non, non-Jew, a, a, a Gentile. Everybody had leprosy, but it was only Naaman that was healed. What Jesus is saying is that those up close who have the best opportunity to get all that God has are really not going to get it. It's the outsiders, those far away. Those are the ones, the Gentile. He's sort of predicting and and setting up for the Gentile mission in his own passion and and, and love for the world. And so the lesson for us is that unbelief is costly. Be careful when you feel like you can't believe. I mean, sometimes the truth is you don't want to believe. I, I have son struggling a little bit with that. He, he, he just can't believe. And I'm like, okay, it's okay. Just God can handle all your questions. Ask away. 
Jesus is not intimidated by that. But you know, son, there's a time when you decide you don't want to believe. So be careful with that. Because unbelief is costly. Uh, It it will cost you the benefits that God has for you. Uh, It will cost you uh, missed opportunities that he has because in your mother's womb he knew you and put you together and had all kinds of plans. And you know what? You can miss it if you choose not to believe. And uh, Jesus knew that. And he went undeterred on mission right through them on his way. Jesus will be on his way. And he's going to do what he's got to do with or without you. And those of us up close can miss him. Those of us right with our faces in the scripture can miss him. We can miss his message for us. And we can miss the opportunity. And we can slide into unbelief. Uh, And you see, whenever you and I come into the grace of our Lord and we're part of his redemptive plan for us, and when we turn around and touch other people who need help, that's what Buckner does, uh, you and I become agents of redemption. We don't do the redemption. We're the hands and the feet. And uh, we take all that was intended for harm and help transform it into good. And uh, we follow our king. We follow our redeemer into the ugliest places I often say, James 1.27 says, pure religion that the Father accepts is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Camp out on the word distress for a while. And so it's not widgets in a warehouse that you process and send and fill the customer's order. These are people, and it's messy, and the distress is serious. So oftentimes, it's, uh, you, you work your way through a lot of mess, and it doesn't get a whole lot better. Uh, But the Lord promises to take what was intended for harm to turn it into good. Let's follow our king, the eternal king, into that place and follow his agenda, become agents of his redemption. Would you stand as we sing?